Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Danny Gittings. On today's program, we're looking at President Xi Jinping's three-day visit to Russia. Both the president and his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin, have hailed what they've described as a new era in Sino-Russian relations, with Mr Xi stressing that Beijing's long-term relationship with Moscow is a strategic choice based on its fundamental interests. A joint statement also said both sides would work together to promote studies and consultations on a planned new natural gas pipeline connecting the two countries, stopping short of a final deal on the project, dubbed the Power of Siberia 2. And while Moscow welcomed Beijing's willingness to play what it called a positive role in the diplomatic settlement of the Ukraine crisis, Mr Putin said a Chinese peace plan could only be taken as the basis for a peaceful settlement once the West and Ukraine were ready. So what's the significance of this high-profile visit? Can China help to secure a peaceful resolution of the Russia-Ukraine conflict? After 9.45, we'll get reaction to government proposals to make it easier for more reclamation to be carried out in Victoria Harbour by relaxing a general ban on such work and cutting the paperwork required to secure exemptions under the Harbour Protection Ordinance. So let us know what you think about both topics. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call, the number there, 233 now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line a China analyst, Mark O'Neill, Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University, and Jean-Pierre Cabestan, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Baptist University. Good morning to you all, and uh, thanks for joining us on the program. Um, now, Professor Mahoney, what do you think were the main uh, achievements of uh, President Xi's uh, three-day visit? You know, in my assessment, I think there are three sort of separate but, but interrelated uh, developments. Um, the first is obviously what has attracted a lot of attention, this proposal for diplomatic settlement in Ukraine, something that, that of course, a lot of people are uh, hopeful for, but, but also after we saw the, 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 the Chinese side successfully mediating the resumption of uh, diplomatic ties between Saudi Arabia and Iran, this, you know, I think bolstered people's expectations that, that China might be uh, onto something as, as a peacemaker. We know, of course, that the conflict in Ukraine is, is still very hot and uh, at risk for expanding or escalating. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I do think uh, China has expressed uh, a sincere effort um, uh, to, to advance mediation there. And I, and I, I remain somewhat optimistic on those prospects. Um, the, the second thing, uh, obviously, is that uh, China and Russia continue to talk about expanding trade and cultural exchanges. They have uh, some goals for 2030 to, to taking the, these, these uh, uh, developments to a new level. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, uh, the, the hot issue here is, is the possibility of a new natural gas pipeline perhaps traversing uh, Mongolia. But the, the third thing, and this is something that uh, Foreign Minister Qing Gong has, has uh, um, added uh, new co uh, comments to um, uh, in, in the press, is this, this idea of uh, strategic coordination, which I think will be somewhat uh, controversial uh, in the United States and the West. And it's this idea that uh, China and Russia have to work together um, uh, as, as Qing Gong said, to consolidate and strengthen strategic coordination because they're facing uh, pressures from some of the same actors like the United States 
that are trying to um, contain um, uh, and uh, 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 prevent the advancement of some countries and civilizations to advantage uh, the U.S. or, or American allies. So this is uh, where we'll see perhaps some, some pushback and some allegations that uh, uh, China is favoring Russia uh, over Ukraine or, or, or perhaps over uh, a more neutral uh, global stance. Right. Uh, Professor Kavistan, uh, do you agree with uh, uh, Professor Mahoney's assessment? Uh, what do you think was the uh, significance of this high-profile visit? Well, I think we are in a new Cold War, uh, in a binary world. On the one hand, you have China and Russia ganging up to put pressure on Ukraine. On the other side, you have the U.S., the Europeans, trying to uh, help Ukraine regaining its territory. Uh, so... Um, it's a um, really typical uh, binary confrontation between two camps. And uh, everything which has been said earlier uh, goes in that direction, including this strategic coordination, which is going to deepen the relationship between Russia and China. Now, from a European point of view, uh, it's very concerning because you have someone who has been accused of war crimes ganging up with someone uh, you know, who is uh, presiding uh, over the destiny of a country which has been also, also accused of crimes against humanity in Xinjiang. So uh, the image of these two dictators, uh, you know, working together to put pressure um, on Ukraine, but also to demonize NATO, um, is very concerning. So I don't think it's going to help uh, bringing together Europeans, the European Union in particular, and China. So uh, again, it uh, contributes to creating a more binary world where, you know, there are two sides. So that's why, to answer your question about, you know, China's mediation, I think it's very hard because China is on the Russian side very much. So we'll see what come out of the Zelensky, the meeting, or the video conference, or the video conference between uh, Xi Jinping and Zelensky. Um, but I'm, and, and you know, on the Ukrainian side, that maybe the only silver lining here there is a willingness to reach out to the Chinese and to see what the Chinese can do on this issue. Uh, but there is much, not much expectation on the West. The problem is that, um, you know, there is nothing in the agreements or the statement made by Russia and China recently about, you know, withdrawing the troops from Ukraine, re- giving back Ukraine its, uh, interna- its, its uh, territorial integrity and respecting Ukraine's sovereignty. So. So for Ukraine, it's going to be hard to accept uh, this uh, new uh, kind of a proposal. Uh, And it's not really a peace plan. It's more, you know, a a statement, uh, uh, you know, this position paper with a number of principles. But uh, I don't think they're going to help. Right. And Professor Mahoney, just now, uh, Professor Kapistan, he's saying that uh, um, the mainland is on the Russians' uh, side. But uh, um, the mainland has uh, all along stressed that it is uh, neutral. Um, its position is neutral in this uh, Ukraine conflict, right? Yeah, I, I completely disagree with uh, the other professor's characterization. I, I think in the 12-point proposal, China made clear that uh, the respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity is paramount. It's clear that the, the 12-point proposal is merely a framework for inducing both sides into a conversation, trying to reach a ceasefire so that we can begin to negotiate some sort of true 
diplomatic settlement. It's not a framework for an ultimate settlement, but trying to get both sides to the table so the killing can stop and to ensure that there's not further escalation that will not only continue to destroy uh, 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 parts of uh, that, that world, but, but it, um, and it risk a broader escalation that could have uh, much bigger implications for the world than we've already seen. Uh, furthermore, uh, I think that, uh, you know, this idea that uh, Russia, that, that China has favored uh, Russia at Ukraine's expense um, is, is, again, a mischaracterization. And I don't see this, I don't see... I think we've lost um, uh, Professor Mahoney. Are you still there? Uh, well, while we're trying to uh, bring Professor Mahoney back, uh, uh, let's, let's go to the photo of our guest, uh, Mark O'Neill. Uh, Mark O'Neill, good morning. Good morning. Uh, so what, what, what did you make of this visit then? I mean, and particularly, I mean, talk about the, the Chinese position in, in, in terms of um, Ukraine, because um, there were some interesting changes in the language from the Chinese side, weren't there? There's no, there's no, no more reference to no limits partnership and so on. Yes, but... No, I, I completely agree with Professor Kabastan. I mean, Xi Jinping has met Putin 40 times since he took office. He's the foreign leader with whom President Xi feels the closest uh, contact. And since the war started, he has not made one phone call to Ukrainian president. And with Iran and Saudi Arabia there, the two sides wanted to come together. So China played a very useful and constructive role in bringing the two together to reach the agreement. But in the case of Ukraine-Russia, it's completely the opposite, because there's absolutely no agreement about the land. Ukraine wants all its land back. Russia insists that uh, the, these lands in the east belong to Russia. So the two sides are miles apart. And Ukraine will, of course, welcome President Xi's telephone call, welcome the fact that Xi is the only major leader who has any influence on Putin, so that's very valuable to Ukraine. But, you know, he's, he's, he's clearly on, on, on the Russian side. They've not condemned the war. They use the same language on the invasion as is used in, in the Russian media. And so nobody in the, in the West can see Xi as a, you know, a neutral party. And, you know... Putin is Adolf Hitler. He's described in the West as Putler. He's a war criminal. So I can understand why President Xi wanted to, to go to Moscow and meet him, and they have a lot of things to discuss. But from the European, from the, from the Ukrainian perspective, you are sitting there uh, shaking hands with, having dinner with, uh, signing these agreements with the man we consider to be the second Adolf Hitler, you know, Satan, incarnate who is murdering women and children and bombing hospitals and schools every day. So th this makes it very difficult for, for the Ukrainian people in the West to accept China as, as, you know, as a neutral mediator. So, no, I, I don't think uh, the peace plan will, will lead to any concrete results on the ground. All right. All right. Uh, we, we have uh, Professor Mahoney back on the line. Professor Mahoney? Yes, I think that's Hi. Right. Uh, just nonsense. Earlier, earlier, yeah, earlier you're talking about a mischaracterization. Uh, can, you, can you continue yeah. on that? Thanks. Yeah, I, I was just listening to, to my colleague's description. I think this is, this is inflammatory. I think it's nonsense. I don't think we've heard this rhetoric from Kiev itself. I think, Kiev, I, think he, I think he said one thing correct, which I think Kiev is hopeful that China has some uh, positive relationship with Russia and can encourage Russia 
uh, to a peaceful negotiation. Uh, I haven't seen anything um, uh, uh, similar said about China in uh, Kiev. I think repeating these, these completely false allegations, these completely disproven allegations of genocide in Xinjiang is also inflammatory. I think comparing... Well, it's, it's a to, UN report. To Hitler, UN report. To, to, you know, I think... I think uh, sir, I'm by sorry. Michel Bachelet. Mark, um, can we let uh, Professor Mahoney continue first? So, you know, I think that uh, President Xi uh, going to, to Moscow and trying to push forward a peace, and, and keep in mind, I listen very carefully to uh, media in China, state media, but also uh, official statements, and I also hear what's being said in Russia, and there is not a one-to-one consisting. China does not repeat what Russia says. In fact, very different. China has remained very neutral in this conflict. And I think as a result, there is optimism that China will be able to negotiate a peaceful settlement. It's in China's interest for there to be a peaceful settlement. It's in the world's interest. And let's hope that that's the case instead of trying to demonize uh, China's role, constructive role, in trying to promote peace. But how, how about Mark O'Neill's point that um, uh, President Xi has met um, President Putin something like 40 times now? And uh, that, just, that suggests a slight, uh, that's kind of hard to reconcile with a, with a neutral attitude, isn't it? Professor not Mahoney? at all. It's not at all. They share a long border. They share common strategic interest in Central Asia, interests that, that began to grow closer after the United States penetrated Central Asia and began to create uh, security concerns starting in the 1970s, but then advancing in the wake of 9-11. Um, and Russia is a major energy supplier to the Chinese economy. This is one of the reasons why China has been able to avoid some of the worst aspects of inflation uh, over the past couple of years, uh, or the past year with, with, with following the, the initiation of the conflict. And it's in China's immediate strategic interest. It's in the, it's in the interest of the Chinese people, their own security to have a good neighborly relation with Russia, to have good trade with Russia. But China has made it clear, and I think there has been no evidence to the contrary, that China has not supported the war effort, has not contributed to the war effort, and refuses to contribute to the war effort. Okay. All right. Uh, just a reminder, um, if you have any questions, are you listening to Backchat right now? If you have any questions for our guests or comments on today's topics, you can email us at backchat at rchk.hk or call us, of course. And uh, to our listener, Mr. Austin, who wants to know if our number has changed. Uh, no, it hasn't. Our number is 233-88266. And uh, of course, uh, like our listener, T.C. Jung, you are welcome to leave a message on our Facebook page. And uh, here's uh, T.C. Jung's comment. Um, he says, uh, I don't quite understand why the Chinese government and mainland Chinese are so supportive of Russia. The biggest territorial loss of China was ceding outer Manchuria to Russia in the 1858 Treaty of Aigun. The area of the land ceded to Russia was 600,000 square kilometers, almost twice the total area of Japan. Beijing was so determined to recover Hong Kong, which is around 1,100 square kilometers from the United Kingdom, yet is content with massive territorial loss to Russia. And if Russia's claim on Crimea and the Donbass is that those territories were once a part of the Russian Empire, it should be fair game for China. China to ask for Outer Manchuria back. And uh, that's a comment from our listener, T.C. Zhang. Um, Professor Mahoney, do you have anything to add to that? You know, I think that uh, if we look at, uh, say, the difference between uh, uh, how mainland China uh, uh, thinks about um, territorial integrity, the, the, the main thing that drives their thinking is 
security and sovereignty. It's not historical claims to territory or the fact that at one point in the Qing dynasty or some other dynasty that the territory expanded uh, to a certain point in time or a certain geographical location. It's rather very simply about sovereignty and security. So, you know, this is why in the, in the, um, um, uh, in, in, in Taiwan, we see in these Kuomintang maps uh, that uh, uh, what is today Mongolia is still considered part of, of uh, China. But in the PRC uh, era, um, uh, it was sensible to let Mongolia go because it improved the sovereignty and security of China. Conversely, uh, Taiwan, which is the high ground, which is where the rivers begin, the headwaters, uh, this is a strategic necessity for Chinese security and sovereignty. Whoever occupies that high ground can control Chinese agriculture, can control uh, militarily the interior of China. This is why uh, in, in, a, in previous generations we had countries play the 100-year game, trying to gain control over Tibet, to, to leverage, finally, uh, control over the interior of China, because historically, during the period of semi-colonialization, uh, the foreign powers were only able to project from the coastal areas and, and, and therefore not completely subjugate China. So it's really, it's really not about some sort of uh, ab, uh, abstract uh, uh, claim or attempt to... Um, reconstitute some sort of historical notion of, of greater China, but merely trying to ensure that sovereignty and security is a realistic, uh, realistically achieved uh, goal and objective in, in, in the contemporary world. Uh, Mark O'Neill, we, we've talked a lot about Ukraine, the Ukraine, but Ukraine was actually hard, hardly mentioned during the summit. The summit focused on Sino-Russian relations uh, generally. I, um, what, what, what's your take on I mean, there are a lot of suggestions now that uh, Russia is very much the junior partner in this relationship and that that suits uh, China just, just fine. Um, what's your take on that, Mark O'Neill? Well, uh, no, I think the professor is quite right. I mean, the, the main things that were discussed in Moscow were these bilateral issues. Uh, I mean, China has been the greatest beneficiary of the war. I mean, last year, the bilateral trade was 190 billion U.S. dollars. That's a record. It was up 44% over the year before. Its imports of energy were $81.3 billion, up from $52.8 billion the year before. So China is now able to buy oil, Russia, oil, gas, coal, and other very important commodities at a discounted price because Russia can no longer sell them in Europe. Also, the West has imposed these very strict sanctions on Russia, which means Russia needs to buy from China many industrial items, machinery, semiconductors, and so on, that before it bought from the West. So that's also been a great boon for Chinese exporters. So there's clearly an enormous potential for growth in trade between the two. So I'm sure that took up a lot of the discussions. And on this pipeline, I think we have to say that Putin was very much hoping that President Xi would specifically sign up to this and agree to it, because for him, it's the replacement of Nord Stream, you know, the, the pipe to the two pipes to Germany, which are not going to be used now. So it, it has to find a market to, to, to sell the gas to. So this is a, an enormous project from, from northern Siberia through Mongolia to China. And it's been discussed for some time. And Putin was hoping that publicly President Xi would, would commit himself to this. 
And but he didn't, he didn't say specifically. I mean, he said they're discussing it, uh, you know, uh, studies are ongoing and so forth. But he didn't give a specific commitment because, um, you know, China buys gas from many different countries. The Chinese economy in the next 10 years will grow more slowly than in the last 10 years. So, and it's already receiving large amounts of gas through another Russian pipeline. So maybe President Xi's advisors are telling him, well, we, we may not need the gas from this huge pipeline. So I, I think that was a great disappointment to Mr. Putin. Doesn't that, surely, that's a very tangible sign of who is the junior partner in this relationship, that um, the, uh, the Russians really want this pipeline and the Chinese um, in the position to choose whether, whether or not to say yes? Oh, yes. I mean, it's so, it's so evident. In the 50s, you know, it was the other way around. Yes. When, mm. when Chairman Mao flew, flew to And Stalin to refused to see him, time, didn't he? Yes. He was kept waiting in Adasha for several weeks before Stalin would see him. I mean, Stalin insulted him. But now it's the absolute reverse. And President uh, Xi is a very tall, imposing figure. And <laughs> you know, Putin is very small in stature. So the two of them walking together, it was very clear who is the more important partner, and um, Putin has not so many cards to play. Uh, Jean-Pierre Capistan, how about that, that we, we do see a sort of a, a realignment in terms of the power relationship where China emerges much more powerful than Russia? Yes. Um, yes, clearly. Uh, but at the same time, what I would say, I and mean, if you look at the statements issued by both sides, they're trying to erase that um, asymmetry in the relationship to uh, sort of emphasize the fact that they're operating on an equal footing, that uh, China needs Russia as much as Russia needs China. Uh, but of course, that's part of the diplomatic game in order to give some face and from, uh, uh, some, some status to, to Russia and to Putin. Um, but I, I would add that it's also in China's interest to maybe exaggerate the power of Russia. Um, to um, remind everyone that Russia is a major nuclear power, which is true, you know, with uh, 5,000 warheads uh, against maybe 300, 400 on the Chinese side, and so uh, as many warheads as the U.S. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at the size of the Russian economy, it's smaller in value than the South Korean economy. So, so Russia is really a, a junior partner, and um, is uh, uh, as I mean, Putin has made the, the really uh, adventurous and wrong decision to, uh, you know, invade uh, Ukraine. He's been the aggressor there, clearly, uh, you know, in the eyes of, the, uh, of most of the world. I mean, 140 countries in the world have condemned Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Uh, of course, as you know, China, India, and other countries have abstained, but uh, still, a majority uh, of uh, the world community, international community, has condemned Russia. And, and this is going to weaken Russia, and that worries uh, that worries uh, uh, China because China doesn't want to see Russia being too weak, uh, and that's why China is, is you know is providing a lot of assistance to Russia. Now the big question, the big red line, of course, uh, for the Americans but also for the Europeans, is whether China is going to start selling weapons or weapon systems to Russia. The Americans have been warning about that for yes, almost months was, now, and it still hasn't happened, right? Uh, uh, well, <laughs> I think we know if it'll uh, happen, on, right? Uh, oh, no, I think we do know. We do know. Yeah, yeah, in well, principle, it hasn't happened, but I think China has provided uh, technology, semiconductors, and maybe even drones, I mean, civilian drones, which I use uh, uh, for on the battlefield uh, to, to Russia. So, 
So the, I think there the, the, the are reasons for, for the American to, to, so, to, be, to, be, to have warned China and to be worried about it, and also for the Europeans to be worried. So, uh, but, but I don't think, I mean, if I may make a forecast, I don't think that China will go that far and will try to stay be below the red screen in terms of uh, arms uh, and procurement to, to Russia in the context of war in Ukraine. All right, uh, Professor Kavistan, we're, we're about to take a quick break uh, for the news very soon. Many thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Jean-Pierre Kavistan, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Baptist University. And uh, we'll continue our discussion after the news when we'll be joined by Professor Lao Siu Kai, a Vice President of the Chinese Association of Hong Kong and Macau Studies. Now, if you have any questions for our guests or just want to share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at Backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And uh, here's a quick look at the weather, mainly cloudy with a few showers. The top temperature will be around 27 degrees. Isolated thunderstorms later, winds moderate southerlies. Right now it's 25 degrees, relative humidity 80%. It's now 9.30. The news summary here with Andrew Shirovsky. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority has increased the base rate for lenders in the SAR by a quarter of a percentage point. The rate is now set at 5.25% based on a preset formula and follows the latest rate hike by the U.S. Federal Reserve. The Fed increased interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point overnight. A senior fellow at a mainland-based think tank has hailed President Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow as a success after the state leader gave assurances to Russia that it's not isolated on the international stage. Einar Tangen from the mainland-based Taihe Institute told RTHK the signing of economic partnerships is a way to release pressure on Moscow. And the United Nations is warning of an imminent risk of water shortages. In a report issued at its first major summit on the issue for four decades, the UN says water scarcity is becoming prevalent because of overconsumption, pollution, and the effects of climate change. We'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Drainage repairs can be costly. The Building Drainage System Repair Subsidy Scheme run by the Government and the Urban Renewal Authority offers financial assistance of up to 80% of total drainage repair costs to owners of eligible buildings. The buildings must be aged 40 or above, with or without statutory orders related to common drains. Call 3188-1188 for details. I'm Dr. Siu Kaka. The best protection for kids aged 6 months or above is arranging for them to get COVID-19 jabs. Catching COVID-19 isn't like having a cold or flu. A severe case like encephalitis may lead to intensive care or even death. Vaccination can reduce severe cases in pregnant women who can then pass antibodies to the fetus. Newborns can also get the antibodies through breastfeeding from vaccinated mothers. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Danny Gittings and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is China analyst Mark O'Neill and Professor Joseph Gregory Mahoney from East China Normal University. Also joining us on the line now is Professor Lao Siu Kai, a vice president of the Chinese Association of Hong Kong and Macau Studies. Good morning, Professor Lao. Thanks for joining us on the program. So, I mean, we in the first half of the program, we were discussing the importance of President Xi Jinping's uh, visit. Um, in your view, why why is it so important? Well, I think it's important because the this visit strengthens the relationship between the two countries. 
creating a lot of uh, fields or areas for mutual cooperation. And that will help China's economic growth very much in the, in the days ahead, particularly in view of the sanctions imposed on China by the United States and uh, the importance to China of securing energy supply and agricultural cooperation, etc. All these are important to China's development. Is it also about uh, countering U.S. hegemony? Oh, that is, of course, one of the reasons. Because whenever the U.S. is trying to contain China, and this containment seems to be increasingly serious. And, and that's why China is to open up even more uh, international space uh, for its development. Uh, to, uh, the, the, the inclusive relationship with Russia is, of course, one of the uh, efforts uh, devoted to, to, for that purpose. And we can see also that China is exploring more opportunities in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia. So all these efforts on the part of China are to make sure that China can still develop in spite of uh, the increasing hostility from the United States. Just before the news, uh, our other guests, we were talking about uh, that uh, now China is now the much stronger partner, partner in the, China, the Sino-Russian relationship, um, uh, the, that uh, Russia wants the gas pipeline and President Xi Jinping didn't give any answer on that. Uh, what, what's your view about that? Is, is it correct that China, China is the, now the stronger partner in this relationship? Well, it's very difficult to say whether uh, it is the case, because I think right now both countries are under pressure from the United States and the West. And they seek cooperation in order to, to strengthen their ability to counter this pressure. So I think both sides, each side, uh, is, is the other side. So it's very difficult to, for, for us to say that which is the stronger partner. But in any case, I think we can see that economically, uh, 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 both countries are very complementary. Uh, Russia can provide energy, or, uh, food, etc. And China can provide manufacturing uh, and, uh, and uh, a big consumer market and uh, industry, etc. So I, I think this is a kind of uh, cooperation which is based on very strong complementarity. And, and what's your interpretation of China's view on the war in Ukraine? When, when the war start, started, there were a lot of suggestions that, um, that uh, Chinese officials were very angry that they hadn't, hadn't been given any warning in advance. Um, well, what, 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 what's, what's your view? Well, I don't, I, I, I don't decide who you want to mention on that. So of course, I, I don't think China wants war at all. But in any case, China, of course, does not want to see war and increase spill over to other places, including China. So that's why China is very keen to, to make sure that uh, uh, the two sides can, can con conduct peace talks and end the war to, in a way satisfactory to both sides. And particularly in the, in the, in the, in the, in the state of stalemate in, in the war. I mean, both Russia and Ukraine cannot really uh, uh, determine the war on, 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 the, on the basis of its own desire. So it may be a good opportunity or a good condition for the for, for peace to, 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 to begin. And that's why China makes the Trump proposal to, to, uh, to not only for the sake of uh, promoting talks, but also to arouse international opinion to support uh, a peace process, a peace process in the, in the Ukraine, uh, in the Ukraine crisis. 
And, and how about China's refusal to condemn the invasion or, or even call it a war? And what, what's, uh, what, 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 what do you think the think, thinking is behind that? Well, I think you can see it from the joint declaration uh, uh, by China and Russia. I mean, China seems to have uh, taken a more historical point of view as to why the war takes place. In, in, uh, in fact, China does not use the word war at all. China uses the word crisis. I think uh, China takes a, a very broad and deep historical perspective and, 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 and see the war being caused by a lot of uh, structural and historical factors, uh, not simply because of uh, uh, action taken by, by Russia. Right. And uh, Professor Lau, you, you mentioned, uh, uh, you talked about the importance of the of uh, President Xi's uh, visit earlier. Um, but if you, I mean, looking at uh, uh, the achievement of this uh, trip, uh, what would you say was the most uh, significant achievement of uh, President Xi's uh, trip? Well, the, the achievement is that uh, the, uh, even though we are talking about a comprehensive strategic uh, partnership between the two countries, from what I can see in the joint declaration, these partnerships seem to have uh, elevated to a much, very much higher level in the sense that, uh, that the cooperation between two countries is not confined to uh, energy and, and maybe some uh, uh, some trade. It's a very comprehensive document. Uh, Create a situation where both sides seem to be uh, trusting each other very much and that they want to have uh, more integrated uh, Eurasia, regional cooperation. But the real solution seems to me that uh, we are talking about the rise further of Eurasia, uh, which will mean that uh, if we have significant geopolitical uh, implications for the whole world. Now, if we look back at history, of course, China and Russia had a, uh, or it was then the Soviet Union, had a very close relationship before, and then it all fell apart. The two countries even had a, had a small war. And um, you do sometimes see, uh, see suggestions, people looking into the future, wondering whether this new relationship will be uh, more durable than the, the last one. What are your thoughts on that, Professor Lau? Well, I would say that, uh, yes, we can see that there has been a lot of friction between the two countries in the past. But uh, now, and I would say that in the foreseeable future, the solidarity between the two countries seems to be quite strong. It seems not, not because of the, the, they need each other, but also because uh, they also see opportunity arising that the old international order created by the U.S. is now on the decline, and that uh, many countries in the world are now uh, trying to seek a new international order. And I, I think that Russia and China are trying to sponsor or to champion a kind of new international order, uh, which is uh, not the same as the order created by the U.S. So, if that's the case, uh, we, are, we are going to see uh, <coughs> even more cooperation between the two countries across a new international order based on values, not necessarily uh, of, of those of the West. Uh, Mark O'Neill and uh, Professor Mahoney are still with us. Um, Mark O'Neill, what are your thoughts on how durable this uh, new... Uh, well, science I, I'm not so confident as, as uh, my esteemed colleague. I mean, will Putin be in power in a year's time or two years' time? Now, if he is overthrown, and if he were replaced by a more Gorbachev type of figure, a more reformist figure who wanted to become closer to Europe or closer to the United States, that would surely <clears throat> change the basis of the relationship with China. 
if he was replaced by someone similar to Putin, I mean a nationalist, uh, you know, very right wing, then, then yes, the relationship would continue on the same path. So uh, I think it's very difficult to know what, uh, what is the future of Russia. I mean, Putin has made such a catastrophic mistake. I mean, Europe uh, was naturally the biggest market for Russia's exports. Uh, Europe needed the energy, the coal, the minerals which Russia supplied. I mean, there was a perfectly complementary relationship between them. Russia imported industrial goods, cars and so forth from Europe. And Putin has completely destroyed that. And even when the war ends, I don't think Europe is going to be willing to buy large amounts of goods from from Russia, maybe a limited amount, but not not a large amount, and certainly not if it still occupies parts of Ukraine. So, you know, Putin's uh, mistake is just beyond our imagination. So therefore, it's very hard to look into the future in in years' time. Will the war still be going on? Will Putin still be in power? And so it's very hard to tell you know, what, what will China's interest be then and what the relationship will be at that time. Professor Mahoney, it's very hard to look into the future, but you can try. Well, you know, there were historic conflicts between uh, Germany and France, and we don't today talk about whether or not we have a, a future war between Germany and France. The United States acquired a considerable amount of its territory uh, by fighting a war against Mexico, but we don't talk about today. That was rather further in the past, though, wasn't it? I mean, that was quite a lot further further back. The point is, the point is, you know, the future, anything is possible, but I, I don't think that this relationship is really driven by ideology. I think it's it's driven by shared uh, interest and, and shared strategic concerns that don't simply come from Moscow or, or Beijing, but are in part connected to pressures coming from Washington. And, and above all, you know, we have this unexplained sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline, which increases the likelihood of a non-ideological uh, economic alignment between China and Russia, because China... Uh, needs to buy energy. It has it has various sources that it can that it can buy energy from, uh, but uh, Russia needs to sell energy. This is a, a large part of its economy depends on this. So uh, whoever blew that up, <laughs> Seymour Hersh says it's the United States working with Norway. But who knows at this point? Maybe we'll have some sort of a fair accounting of this in the future. But you know, so there was a comment made earlier about China benefiting from this war more than anyone else. And in fact, what we hear from some of the European ca- uh, capitals is that it's the United States that has benefited, that the United States that has uh, uh, been able to support uh, the continuation of the petrodollar at, at the euro's expense, that has now begun to sell energy uh, to Europe uh, at Russia's expense. Furthermore, uh, there is some uh, evidence that uh, perhaps India is buying more energy from Russia than China is. So let's let's be very clear about how we characterize the broader geostrategic uh, position that's, that's been unfolding in the past year. All right. Uh, let's go back to Professor Lau for a moment. Professor Lau? Yeah. So just now, uh, Professor Mahoney, he's saying he's talking about that the relationship between Russia and China is uh, based on shared interest and not uh, shared ideology. Do, do you also agree with that? Well, there is also some shared ideology there, simply because both both countries are not uh, that much uh, uh, accepting of uh, to, to Western values. And I would say that uh, Russia is a country which has a history of both having Western values and uh, Asian values. 
So I must say that uh, there is also some kind of cultural affinity between the two countries, which made it possible for the two countries to cooperate and more than just on the basis of interest. Right, and I also have a uh, comment here from a listener, Michael Hoffman, uh, Professor Lau. Um, he says, uh, um, I'd love to see a peace and ceasefire brokered by President Xi. What an opportunity to thumb their noses at this weak Biden administration. Just do it. That's a message from Michael Hoffman. Um, Professor Lau, do you see that, uh, that uh, happening anytime soon? Well, I think uh, any war... And at the end of the day, any war is to be finished by, by this time. And I think, uh, given the fact that this, this uh, war is so devastating to both Russia and, and Ukraine, I would say even the West has to pay a heavy price for this war to continue. If that's the case, there should be some kind of opportunity for peace to take place, simply to, 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 to make sure that uh, uh, as no one can really change the situation fundamentally, Yes, but you must be better to talk to find a solution. All right, uh, Professor Lau, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us on the program this morning. That's uh, Professor Lau Sukai, a vice president of the Chinese Association of Hong Kong and Macau Studies. Many thanks also to uh, Mark O'Neill, China analyst, and Joseph Gregory Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations at East China Normal University. It's now 9.46 and it's time to turn to our second topic today. And it's about government proposals to make it easier for more reclamation to be carried out in Victoria Harbour. And we'll find out more right after this. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hello, I'm Michael Wong, the Deputy Financial Secretary. For the past 95 years, our THK has shared a common journey with Hong Kong people. Going forward, I trust that our THK will continue to provide Hong Kong with more programs that are rich in content and that can move our hearts. 95 years of public service broadcasting. 95 years. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. With Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. The government is proposing an exemption to harbour protection laws that would allow small or temporary harbour improvement reclamations to go ahead. Currently, reclamation inside Victoria Harbour is banned unless there is an overriding public need. Now, in papers submitted to LegCo, the Development Bureau proposes that smaller reclamation works be exempted from the ban. The government says it plans to consult the Harbour Front Commission on the changes later this month and will kick off a three-month public engagement exercise in April. To comment on this, we have on the line Harbour Front Commission member Winston Chu. Good morning, Mr Chu. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Now, um, Mr. Chair, I know you initiated the uh, protection of the harbour ordinance in the 1990s. Uh, do you think it's time for a review and uh, for amendments to be made to the ordinance? Well, I ask the public not to be misled by the government. There are two parts to the amendment. The first part concerns details. Small-scale uh, reclamation has never been a problem. Since 2008, our society has cooperated fully with the government, and every government project has been approved and is proceeding smoothly. There's absolutely no problem. We've been asking the government to do more, but the government has refused. So if there's any problem, it's not the the authority, it's not the 
uh, ordinance or ourselves. It's just the government did not go ahead. So there is really no problem. But to pacify the government, we have worked with the government and proposed 14 types of vaccination, small scale, to improve the harbour, which does not need to be within the ordinance. So we are taking a very cooperative approach to the government's proposals. So you would agree with uh, amending the ordinance in relation to... I know there's another issue which you don't agree with, but on that that issue you would agree with amending the ordinance. For small-scale reclamation for public benefit, there is absolutely no problem. So please, the public, do not be misguided and misled by these detailed uh, uh, proposals. They're not important. But the government says that although it's true they are approved, but at the moment the process of approving them is very slow. Is very slow indeed, um, and they say that's why they need to, they need to amend the ordinance. It doesn't need to be. The government only tied their own hands under the ordinance, according to the judgment of Chief Justice Andrew Lee. He's already said that what is remaining of the harbour is precious. Therefore, what you apply, you apply a sliding scale. The greater the damage to the harbour, the greater the justification. Therefore, if the government proposes a small-scale reclamation, the justification doesn't need to be very difficult. But the government will refuse to listen to that. So can we leave the subject of small-scale reclamation? We just say that our society has no comment. We do not oppose it. It's for the uh, public and other people to debate the details. But our society is very concerned we are so concerned that we are thinking of winding up the society. If this goes through, there is one section which is buried in the details, which they, most people do not spot, which is to take away the right of the courts to adjudicate on the legality of large-scale reclamations. We use the ordinance to stop 600 hectares of harbour reclamation. That is. 140 million square feet. That what is what concerns us. Because if this section passes, then the government can proceed with all these large-scale reclamations without the public having any right to stop it. We were able to stop six uh, reclamation projects through the law courts because of the ordinance. What this section is now proposing is that the law courts have no right to approve reclamation. The large-scale reclamation, the right to approve, is reverted to the hands of the EXCO. That means EXCO proposes the reclamation and EXCO decides whether they are lawful. So the whole thing doesn't make sense. So and you the say- law court will lose its power. Right. So, so who do you think should, should uh, be responsible for approving reclamation? Should it be like well, a, a third where, party? Where where you have the government wanting reclamation, who's going to stop them? Who can? Except the law courts. You're raising a more important point because in, in most of the reporting about these... Uh, I mean, of course, we, we have to be fair, right? The, 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 the details haven't been... Out. The government says it's going to consult. They haven't put forward the bill yet, so you can't be absolutely sure what's going to be oh, yes, in the final version of the proposals. Sure. If you just read the uh, proposal, there's only two lines that you need to read. It is for the government to approve whether or not the project complies with the ordinance. 
Uh, that's not the that? same. That's not the same as saying that the courts are forbidden from um, uh, to to prevent the courts from uh, continuing. You'd, you'd have to write law- something much more direct into the law than no. that. No, the law is very clear. If the power is given to the government, the courts will lose their power of adjudication. Now, just think of me. Let us not argue on the law. Mm. I'm a lawyer of sixty years standing. Okay. All right, and I wrote the law. The law is very clear. At the moment. The public has the right to go to law courts to challenge a government decision. But if the law says that the decision is only in the hands of the government, the law courts have no say. This section has this effect. It invalidates both the Harbour Ordinance as well as the Court of Final Appeal Judgment. It is very drastic, extremely dangerous. So you're saying that what has been presented as sort of uh, fairly a minor amendments to the law, and publicly the government has said that it still believes in the Harbour Protection Ordinance, uh, it will follow it, and that these are just um, uh, relatively small exceptions, one for very small reclamations. You already said you don't have any strong view on the other for temporary reclamations. um, But you're saying there's something much wider than this. That is very strange, sir. We passed the ordinance in 1997, and after that, the government still proceeded with five large-scale reclamations, totaling 584 hectares. This is after the ordinance. So the government policy changes from time to time, and therefore the harbour is under three dangers, sir. First, the land produced through reclamation is extremely valuable in terms of trillions of dollars. Secondly, all reclamation works are expensive, and they're in terms of hundreds of billions. Those are two very, very big temptations for the government. And so one day the government may change its policy and want to reclaim, and Hong Kong people cannot stop it. We're going to wind up our society because we can't do our job. Why are you going to, I mean, you, if you feel there's such a big threat from the proposed changes, so you might say your society is needed more than ever. Why, why are you going to wind it up? What can we do if they change the law? Oh, you mean you're going to wind up if to, the law is actually passed or the yeah, amendments are passed? We protect the harbour because of the law we passed, what, 30 years ago. So we have been keeping the harbour safe. But without the law, there is no protection. We're back to square one. But, right? it, but again, we are still at a very early stage because the government has just, at the moment, they have just put forward proposals for consultation. We, we don't know what will go into the final bill at this stage, oh, I'm, do we? I, I'm sure the bill... I'm sure the bill will be passed. Yes, I bet we the bill waiting. may be passed, but we don't know what the bill will actually say. I mean, they, they, they announced... The bill gonna... is going to... Sir, please read the two lines I refer you to. In the future, the legality of reclamation is in the hands of the government. So, EXCO will, dis- will ask for the reclamation, and they will decide that it is lawful. So if oh, that is way, in, if the, what they, the government announced for consultation is, is then put in the bill... Please read the document carefully, and may I refer you, finally, to the basic rule of natural justice, that is, a person cannot be the judge of his own cause. Therefore, this section of the bill will be doing the, exactly this, which is exco, ask for the reclamation, and then they say it is lawful. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is nonsense. Right, but Mr. Chu, I mean, from what uh, official officials have been saying, they're saying that uh, there's a lot of paperwork 
um, that comes with uh, um, of, uh, this, uh, of applying for a reclamation. And uh, they just want to allow the public to uh, get closer to the sea by building um, broadwalks and promenades. Um, there is it, no problem. We never object to that. This is not the issue. Right, but then what about the paperwork that the, that officials have been talking about? Has no, that been delaying want, the whole process? If they don't want to do the paperwork, just take those uh, broad rocks and things that he suggested. We suggested 14 categories of reclamation work can go ahead without the ordinance, without com- coming within the ordinance. That's simple. 14 classes. In our proposed amendment to the government, which we have handed to the government, we are saying 14 kinds of reclamation can go ahead outside the ordinance, exempt. Right. And if you want to add more, no problem. We yeah. are not against reclamation per se. Small reclamation to enable the public to enjoy the harbour, why not? You, you say that this uh, this bill, if it's proposed in the form that uh, the government is talking about so far, would breach the rules of natural justice. Um, would you consider a constitutional challenge to it? Do you think there might be any potential for challenging the um, amendment itself as somehow against uh, the, the basic law? Sir, if you know the uh, political situation, the courts have no right to challenge LESCO passing a bill. Well, if it's a, if you if you argue if you can argue it's against the basic law or something like that, you, you then you you certainly can bring a case, can't you? Uh, sir, may I suggest that you do it? <laughs> well, I'm just a co-host here. I'm, you're the, you're, the, you're the legal expert, so I'm just asking your advice. Well, I've been a lawyer for sixty years, and I've been lecturing in universities, three of them, for fifty years. And this is not something that's feasible. Then it was presumably what you're saying. That uh, so that's why you were talking about how you'd wind up the society instead. Because we can't do our job to protect the harbour and we don't want to mislead the Hong Kong public. Right. And, and out of the list of, um, of uh, um, items that are exempt uh, from the ordinance uh, that you're talking about, so can, you, can, you, can you give us some examples? I mean, what are the sizes oh, yes. we're talking Things about? Like broad walks, brick water, landing steps, piers, walls. We've got 14 classes. No problem. Where's the problem? We've been asking the government to do it for the past 15 years. They just have not done it. It's not the fault of the of the ordinance, nor our fault. It's just the government will not do it. And uh, did you find out why? They received very doubtful legal advice. We have been giving them our legal advice. We gave them a book called The Proportionality Principle, which is very simple. The greater the damage to the harbour, the greater the justification. Therefore, it's only minor reclamation the justification can be very minor. It's very sensible. All right, so Mr. Chu. One, I'm sorry. There's a difference between one square foot and one million square feet. All right, Mr. Chu, I'm afraid we're out of time. Thanks again for joining us this Thank morning. You. That's uh, Harbourfront Commission member Winston Chu, who is also the chairman of the Society for Protection of the Harbour. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and, of course, to our guest presenter, Danny Gitchings and producer Kaha. I'll be back with another edition of Back Chat tomorrow with Andrew Work.